Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Uh, but we're continuing by looking at Mary. Mary is such a interesting figure in this entire story. Uh, she has a pretty integral uh, role in the birth of Jesus, obviously, uh, and it wrecked her life in a pretty strong way, uh, and I don't think that's too harsh of a word to put on it. Uh, if you have a Bible, though, open up to Luke chapter 1, or your phone, or your app, or read from the screen, uh, but Luke 1, 26 through 38, and let's read about Mary. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a virgin named Mary, and she was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. I love in the message for that, that sentence, confused in the service said, like it says something along the lines of Mary tried to figure out what he was getting at, like what he wanted from her, you know, like that's way too nice of an intro. What's actually going on here? Uh, Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. And he will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David, and he will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. And Mary asked, but how does this happen? I'm a virgin. And the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That has to be the most like understated word in the entire Bible. Overshadow you. What in the world? does that even mean in this instance? So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month for the word of God will never fail. And Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Mary is so unique. In their culture, women were usually engaged to be married when they were around 13. So give or take six months, 12 to 14 probably, when this conversation is happening. She's not married yet. She's still engaged. She gets pregnant and it doesn't happen through normal means of pregnancy, uh, which is repeated over and over. And like, honestly, I can imagine when they're writing the gospels, Mary standing over them and tapping on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and being like, Hey guys, remember to say that I was a virgin. Please remember to sit like, (laughs) like this matters to me. Remember that I was a virgin. Uh, it, she was engaged to a really good guy, we find out, named Joseph, who had to have had a lot of feelings about this whole process because it made him look a little awkward. He was probably standing next to Mary and being like, 
remind them that you were a virgin at this point. It wasn't mine. Like, you know, remind them what was going on. Like, this is such a difficult thing that Mary's going through. Heidi Baker, who's a a Christian leader and author, uh, she talks about this uh, overshadowing that Luke says. And she wrote this, Once the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, her life was permanently altered. There were lifelong difficulties that she had to accept because being pregnant comes with great weight, discomfort, and inconvenience. And the women who have given birth are like, yep. For Mary, this was not an easy yes. But she still said yes. And her willingness to say yes to God's plan is honestly, based on her age, kind of miraculous and just shows a depth of character it's like god knew what he was doing when he called this young woman to the role that she was going to live out and luke tells us about a much more mature uh higher in the social class couple that didn't believe one chapter before we compare and contrast Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1 with Mary in chapter 2. Zechariah, the priest who's in the temple, has an angelic visitation in the spot that you would think that it would happen, right? In the religious epicenter of like their, their entire country. And in that space, he's told that his wife, who he's married to and can have children with through normal processes is going to get married, and he says, shut up, get out of here. Like, he like flat out disbelieves the angel so much so that the angel's like, fine, you're not talking for the next nine months. And like takes away speech until it happens. That's chapter one. Chapter two is 13-year-old, unmarried, by herself, random angel shows up, and she says yes. This 13-year-old's more open to the supernatural work of God than a priest. Why? I think it's because she was content to follow the plan that God had for her life. Even if it seemed less than ideal. And yes, I do think she had a choice. I don't think it was like a do or die sort of thing. I think that there was an option on the table. Uh, Anybody struggle to make choices in our current system? We like options, don't we? We really like options. If you're single or you've been single recently, you have probably looked on dating apps and you know that there's not just one option. There's like, I don't know what, like 10 or 15 like real options of dating apps that you can be on. Uh, So if we look at just one of those, Bumble, There's 12 million people on that app. 12 million options of people to be in a relationship with. Woo, right? That makes it so much easier. So the way that you make a match on a dating app on Bumble is by liking a person and then they choose you as well. So guys, if you're single and you're on Bumble, let me tell you the the great chance that you have of finding somebody on this app. The success rate for men is 3%. 
I know. I just ruined their entire marketing plan. 3%. Like, that's it. Yeah, there's a lot of choices. But 3%. Like, that's terrible. So something that's come back into, like, style is matchmakers. There's Netflix shows about it. I may have watched one or two. Um, they're... <laughs> There's one of them that's actually pretty interesting. Um, and uh, so matchmakers. I, I learned about this because I have a sibling who actually ended up like going to a matchmaker. And I was like, wait, this is still a thing that people do? Like I was just amazed by it. So, you know, they have a much smaller pool of people to choose from. Uh, they, you know, their whole thing is like they're going to, they're going to do all the work. They're going to connect you to somebody uh, that's going to be compatible and ready to commit. And it only costs, on average, around three to five thousand dollars for the initial um, entry fee. Not bad, right? Uh, and the success rate is completely unknown because they're not going to tell you that because they want that three to five thousand dollars. So when it comes to making a good dating choice, you can go low cost and millions of options or high cost but high compatibility what are you going to choose there's so many options i don't know what you choose but i do know that it's hard to make a choice with all the options that we have and it's hard to make any choices because we're always searching for better we have a culture that is frozen by the search for better in everything there is a conversation I listened to between two psychologists who do research. Uh, their names are Adam Grant and Barry Schwartz. And Barry Schwartz wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. And so he talked about his research, and this is what, what he said that, that he found. He, he gave this example. He was like, say you eat only cornflakes for breakfast for your entire life. You're like, cornflakes are good. I'm fine with cornflakes. I'm happy with it. You go to somebody else's house. They have fill-in-the-blank cereal, whatever your better-than-cornflakes option is. And you eat that, and you're like, ooh, this is better. And so then you leave their house, and you go home, and you throw away your cornflakes because now you've got a new good-enough cereal that's better than your old used-to-be-good-enough cereal. And over the course of your life, you keep escalating your standards as you encounter things that are better than the things that you've had before. And so what Barry Schwartz and his team did is that they created a scale to assess people. And they gave them terms. They said, they're maximizers and they're satisfizers. I didn't come up with these terms. I'm just telling you what they chose. But maximizers are people who always want better. And what they found is that maximizers do better and they feel worse. They feel worse about the process of choosing and they feel worse about the thing that they've actually chosen. Because if you're a maximizer, your standards keep going up. The question that you have when you eat at a restaurant isn't, is this good? But was it as good as I expected? And if your standards are high, the question's going to be no. There's no room for pleasant surprises. Things can't be better than you expect because you expect everything to be perfect. Maximizers, according to their research, got higher paying jobs, 
but they were less optimistic, more pessimistic, more depressed, more anxious, and more stressed than those who were satisfied and had worse jobs. Interesting, right? You feel poked a little bit with how you make decisions, maybe? I don't know. I do. So Adam Grant replied to this, and he said, My read of the evidence is that high standards are less of a problem than wide search. It's not so much wanting a great job that makes people miserable. It's the idea that I've got to compare the job in front of me to not only all the offers I might get, but also every job that ever existed in human history. And if there's a possibility that even one is worse, then I'm going to be miserable. You know, he went a little over the top with that, but honestly, I think we, most of us probably can say, yeah, been there, had that thought process, done that. And it hasn't worked out pretty well for us. Being content with a choice that you made is really hard. It's hard in general. Depending on your personality, it's hard. And because of the culture we live in, it's even more difficult. Because contentment is almost laughed at. Why settle for good enough when you can have great? Right? Like, why stop there? Uh, I think what we've done is we've confused settling and contentment a bit. So if I'm throwing out definitions, here's how I would define it. I would say settling is this attitude. You're looking at your life, your job, your family, uh, your house, whatever it is, and you look at it with your arms crossed, and you're like, it's fine. It's adequate. Pays the bills. I can deal. Contentment is looking at that same picture and saying, with like a realistic view of what that all means and what your life is and saying, you know, your plan is pretty good, Jesus. Thanks for taking care of me. Thanks for placing me where you've placed me. Contentment and settling are truly not the same thing. They are very, very different. And what's amazing is that Mary, in all of her 13-year-old wisdom, knew this. And she chose to be content with the plan of God. She didn't settle. She looked at it realistically, I think, in that moment. It was like, okay, your plan's good, God. Amen. And it changed the direction of her life in ways that she never would have expected. So here's what I think we're being invited into, to learn to live our lives with a deeper sense of contentment versus all the other options. But in order to find contentment, we have to be aware of a few things. Uh, we have to learn that it's truly grown by Jesus. Uh, there are no magic wands that all of a sudden tink, and there you go, Debbie. Now you're content for the rest of your life. Like, unfortunately, that's not a thing. But you know how you get content? 
you spend time with Jesus. And you allow Jesus to mature you and to grow you and to pour into you. And then it starts to deepen within you because contentment is the fruit of a life lived with Jesus. The second thing is that we have to kill constant comparison before it kills us. Truly, comparison has been proven to lead to increased levels of depression, increased levels of perfectionism and anxiety, decreased levels of self-esteem, and decreased levels of life satisfaction. Does that sound like the way to go? Is that how you want to live your life? I know it's not. None of us want to live our lives matching that list. But constantly comparing makes contentment completely impossible. There's no way for us to be able to be content if we're constantly comparing everything. So kill it before it kills you because that's where it takes you. And contentment grows when we have the correct expectations. So one of the the parables that nobody ever preaches on is in Luke chapter 17. Uh, Look at this with me. This is in the message. It says, suppose one of you has a servant who comes in from plowing the field or tending the sheep. Would you take his coat, set the table and say, sit down, sir. And like, you know, I just hear it with a British accent. Sit down and eat. Wouldn't you be more likely to say, uh, go prepare dinner, change your clothes, you smell, wait table for me until I finish my coffee, go to the kitchen and have your supper afterwards. Does the servant get special thanks for doing what's expected of him? It's the same with you. When you've done everything expected of you, be matter of fact and say the work is done. What we were told to do, we did. When you've done everything expected. You know, there's a reason nobody wants to talk about this one because there are no warm and fuzzies. (laughs) Like, there's not a lot of like wow, this makes me feel good about following Jesus just on the surface level of it. But it's helpful, I think, because honestly, regular everyday life doesn't include a lot of warm and fuzzies. Do you get patted on the back every time that you make dinner for your kids or your spouse? Do you get patted on the back every time you take out the trash or you clean the bathroom? Like when you go to work, does your boss say, I'm so thankful that you cleaned up that spreadsheet this week? Like, no. Life is a series of the work is done. We did what we were expected to do. We need to stop expecting what's never been promised and instead graciously accept what's actually been given to us. Ronald Rollheiser says this about this parable. He says, what Jesus is doing is drawing the distinction between what comes to us by right as opposed to what comes to us as a gift. If we're only given what's owed, we'd live like that servant. But we are given more. What comes to us by right as opposed to what comes to us as a gift. Allow that to sink in. What am I owed by God based off of what I've done for him? Probably a minimum wage job. 
for being honest. Like, what am I owed? Maybe I've done the basics. What's he given? So much more. Instead of being cranky and constantly saying, you didn't give me what I'm owed, what if we looked at it and we said, thank you for giving me so much more than what I deserve, than what I would have done on my own? And somehow at 13, beautiful, slightly naive Mary figures this out. She knew that contentment could only be grown by God. She knew that comparing what she had versus what her neighbor had would lead her to kind of hate her life. And she knew that if she set her eyes on God, then her expectations would be right on point. She said yes, and I don't think it was because she was wicked excited about what that meant. I think it was because she knew who God was. She knew who he was. Friends, if you know who God is, it takes the pressure off of you. Off of you making the right decisions. Off of you uh, having everything done in the right order. Making enough money. Being a good enough person. All the things. It takes the pressure off of that. And instead, (coughs) sorry, it places it right where it should be. On the character of God. On who God is. One of my uh, favorite scenes in all of fiction is in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, from the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis. And it's where the four kids are sitting at the beaver's house, uh, as one does in Narnia, talking to talking beavers, uh, and uh, having dinner, uh, which is very British. I love how British Narnia is, because all fantasy lands need to be British. Um, and so they're talking about Aslan, and this is what happens. One of the girls says, tell me more about Aslan. And he says, why, daughter of Eve, that's why I brought you here. I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him. Well, is he a man? Aslan a man, certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan's a lion, the lion, the great lion. And Susan goes, ooh, I thought he was a man. Um, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Of course you will. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're braver than most or just silly. So then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? Didn't you hear what she said? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Do you know who God is? There's such beauty in acknowledging the limits of what we know about him. And saying, like, I'm not quite sure who you are in this instance. I'm not quite sure what what you're doing. I, it, just acknowledging it and being honest and saying, like, I'm just giving up my misconceptions about you. And instead, I'm just going to embrace the truth of what I know about your character. So let me ask, do you know who I'm asking you to put your trust in? Do you actually know the character of God? The word I think that's best to describe God in the New Testament is prodigal. The word that's used in a negative way for the son in that parable 
I think actually reflects the character of God more because it's defined as this wastefully extravagant and lavishly abundant. Just listen to some of the promises from the New Testament. Ephesians says this, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. The words used in there, every blessing. He wanted to do it. It gave him great pleasure. He's rich in kindness and grace. He showers us with kindness and wisdom. 1 Timothy 6.17 kind of continues this like overboard like blessing. It says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is unreliable. Their trust should be in God who gives, who richly gives us all that we need for our enjoyment. He richly gives you all that you need, not so that you have just enough that you don't starve, but so that you can experience joy. And then Philippians 4.19, this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. He's taking care of me so I can be confident that he'll take care of you. And he's not just going to take care of you, but he's going to supply all your needs every single thing the whole list he's going to provide for friends contentment comes from knowing who god is and this is who god is he is wastefully extravagantly and lavishly generous and kind and you can trust in that truth that's who we're placing our hope in But, like I said, we need to have proper expectations. And here's a good expectation. You're not going to feel content all the time. You're going to feel off-center. You're going to feel wobbly. You're going to feel like it's not there. You're going to have down days. You're going to struggle. What do you do in those moments where you need to recenter yourself on the truth of Jesus? Here's four just simple things. One, you need to practice gratitude. And here's where I would say we really need to practice it when we're in those spots is in how we talk about our life with other people. Because sometimes we can go down that complaining trail really, really fast where everything that comes out is super negative and you would think that our life had fallen apart, but we just had a bad morning. What are the words that are coming out when we're praying? Or are we actually giving thanks to God and saying, I know that it's, it's not perfect, but thanks for giving me everything I need. Sometimes it's a discipline more than an overflow. The second thing is we need to focus our thoughts. Philippians 4.8, fix your thoughts on what is true, 
honorable, right, and pure, and lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. It's real easy to think about things that are lies and dishonorable and uh, not holy and not pretty, and we don't want other people to, th- to know it's going through our mind. Train your thoughts on what is good. And then look at Jesus. And I know sometimes we're tired and we're sick. And maybe we're cranky at him and we don't really want to. But if we can all just focus our hearts and our minds on Jesus, we're going to course correct a whole lot faster than if we let ourselves go down that other path. Here's the last thing for this. We need to give up our pursuit of better or other. Choose to remain where God has placed you rather than continually trying to take charge and make it happen. I would call this the discipline of rootedness, of rooting yourself in the place that God has placed you at and saying, until you tell me that I need to be uprooted I'm going to just keep going deeper and I'm going to keep setting myself here and I'm going to just focus on you and keep living this out. It's a place of trusting in God's goodness and it's hard, but it leads to the most fruit that we could experience. Mary was able to live this out as a 13-year-old going on, however old she was when she died, because she stayed faithful to where God had placed her. He surrounded her with people that had crazy God encounters like she did. Uh, Her own husband saw an angel, and they didn't think each other was crazy. Uh, Her cousin Elizabeth, the disciples who lived with Jesus, uh, the women who probably became good friends like Mary Magdalene and Martha and Mary. God provided for her all along the way. He gave her what she needed. She was loved and she was cared for. And she seems to have faithfully followed Jesus, her son turned Savior, all the days of her life. Because she was content to follow the plan that God had for her life, even when it seemed less than ideal. Uh, This past Thanksgiving, we went to Ohio to uh, hang out with my family uh, over the holiday. And I... Uh, rented an Airbnb for us to stay at that was outside of Columbus. And it was kind of, it was one of those like 1800s, like brick, like old manor houses. Uh, and it, it was nice from the outside. We get there and the kids are like, I got to see what's inside. You know, kids get real excited at that moment. So they like burst in the house and it had chandeliers and double-decker uh, stairs, and it just felt like you were stepping back into a Jane Eyre-like novel. You know, like it just had that feel. And the kids were like, oh, look at all this. And there was constant, like, this place is so much better than our house. Like, for an entire week, that was what they kept repeating over and over and over again. You know, it has a piano in the dining room and, and look at how much bigger my bedroom is and, and there's a waterfall shower and it was like all the things all week long. And so we leave. Uh, that was Tuesday. We left on Saturday. We get in the car. We start driving. I'm like, hey guys, how are you feeling? It's been a good week, but it's been long. Like, let's check in. 
We start driving, and, and the youngest is like, I just can't wait to get to my bed. And I was like, all week long, you've been saying how much better this was than your place. Like, you compared all week long. She was like, yeah, but it's mine. Friends, if you could see the plan of God as yours, it's going to do something dramatically different for you. If you can own it and be like, yeah, there's really nice places down the street, but this is mine, and I'm going to own it because he gave it to me. It'll change you. 